you ever wish you could be a real life movie hero? Um, not like, not like the stupid Avengers movies or anything like that. I'm talking like a real life Jason Bourne or John McClane or something like that. Well, the subject of today's story tried to do that. He tried to live that life and tried to be uh, a real life action hero. And, um, there's a reason you guys, why that stuff only exists in the movies. It's because it it doesn't work out very well in the end. So you're going to hear that story today. It's our weird world. Our weird world. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and today's story um, is just about a regular guy. Like, he's not a celebrity. He's not known to uh, mainstream history. You're not going to find his story on, like, Wikipedia even um, or, or any other, you know, main, you know, historical website. Um this is just a guy and this was a crazy story that happened a few years ago. Um, not a lot of, uh, early life, uh, details about this guy. Dave Sanders is the, is the name of the guy. I may have said Saunders last week at the end of the show last week, but it's Sanders, Dave Sanders. And yeah, you know, the story is just going to pick up, um, kind of in the middle of his life. Um, you know, we don't really know, uh, at least I don't know when he was born, where he's, you know, where he was born, but, uh, none of that really matters for today's story. Um, you know, usually when we talk about serial killers or whatever, you know, there are a lot of things in their childhood that sort of, uh, throw up red flags as to why they were the way they were as adults. But this story, uh, doesn't have any of that. It just picks up and, and we start running with it. So that's kind of the intro here. It's story time. In 1994, while working as a cable salesman, Dave Sanders decided he wanted a career change. Um, He was a very successful salesman, um, you know, getting six figures, stuff like that, but uh, he wanted a more exciting life. And so he enrolled in the Advanced Security Institute in Sacramento, California. And while he was there, he learned how to shoot, use a baton, and fight jujitsu. Basically, just learning the basic rules of combat for life as a security guard or a police officer, stuff like that. Um, After he got his gun permit, a security guard license, and a shiny new badge, uh, Dave began receiving requests to work as a bodyguard for dignitaries and celebrities that that were coming through California. Um, The results, though, were kind of mixed. He successfully kind of... (laughs) protected Sharon Stone, uh, celebrity, um, on, on a couple of occasions, but, uh, he also accidentally sprayed himself in the face with his own mace twice. I like first time that happens. It happens to the best of us rookie mistake, but if you do it again, something's weird, something weird's going on. Um, but after a few years, uh, life started to kind of get in the way and his bodyguard, bodyguard hobby came to an end. Uh, Dave and his wife, Kathy had three kids 
And Dave was promoted to national sales director at Leviton, a multi-billion dollar electrical supply company where he was working. Um, and just, I mean, clearly, I mean, he's, he's killing it. Um, in 2004, shortly after their third child was born, uh, his wife was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And although doctors were optimistic at first, uh, she unfortunately passed away two years later. And at that point, Dave's really great life started to kind of fall apart. Uh, in December of 2008, Dave's insurance agent, Will Sassman, uh, called him sounding very nervous and asked Dave to come help with something at the office. At the time, uh, Sassman had been trying to help a group of people withdraw money from a local investment fund, but the meeting had gone south and Sassman thought things were about to get violent. Um, he didn't want to call police though. So instead he hoped that his friend Dave, um, and his client, by the way, um, who acted as a former bodyguard could help kind of smooth things over. Well, when Dave arrived, Sassman kind of explained to him what was going on. So, Back in 2004, uh, 25-year-old Anthony Vassallo, a shy, devout Mormon guy, he started this hedge fund. And Vassallo claimed that he had developed trading software that could provide returns of 3.5% every month with little risk of loss. And he convinced 400 people to invest. And within a couple of days, Vassallo had made $40 million. And for the first couple of years, the investors were happy because they were actually receiving reports showing that they were getting their promised return. But when a prosecutor actually learned of Vassallo's fund and labeled it a vast Ponzi scheme, because, you know, of course it was, um, in this happened in around December of 2008, when uh, a prosecutor found that out, Vassallo stopped answering calls and stopped honoring the withdrawal request. And so now here we are in 2008, there's 30 people in Will Sassman's office uh, who were some of uh, Vassallo's panicked investors. So... Obviously, day one, like as I'm reading it, obviously it's a Ponzi scheme. And now you've got all of these panicked investors at this insurance agent's office. This insurance agent has called Dave to come in and just try to like calm the situation down. Um, Dave was very emotionally affected by this story. I mean, he had recently lost a huge part of his life and he didn't want those people to experience a similar loss because apparently losing your wife to cancer is equal to losing millions of dollars. Maybe, maybe it is. I'm not a millionaire. I haven't lost that much money in my life. Maybe it's equally as distressing. I don't know. Um, Dave walked in, told the crowd that he was quote, an ex an executive protection agent and that he was willing to help them out in any way he could. Um, he was not an executive protection agent. I don't know if that thing is actually real. Uh, a few days later, Dave met with Russ Putnam, one of the investors who stood to lose $10 million from the fund. Uh, Russ had invited Dave over for dinner with his business partner, Tom Homan, and after a lengthy discussion, Putnam offered to introduce Dave to Anthony Vassallo. Uh, Vassallo, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Vassallo was called into the living room looking pale and disheveled. And it felt like Putnam and Homan had kidnapped Vassallo and demanded that he make things right. And Dave assured Vassallo that he was going to protect him and just to have explained to him what had gone wrong. Um, even though it's clearly a Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, he's giving Vassallo a chance to, to confess or whatever. But um, Vassallo instead, uh, even though he had been claiming a huge success, Vassallo had actually lost a large portion of the money early on and had completely stopped trading stocks in 2007. 
Uh, and in an effort to make the money back, he tried investing in other high-risk ventures with no success. Uh, he promised he promised there was $20 million out there, quote, out there, that he could get. Um, and Dave offered to protect him while he went out and got it. And from there, now we have the the main plot here to our action movie but it's real life all right <laughs> like dave he's made this emotional connection with these screwed over investors but then he meets the guy who screwed them over and the guy's like hey man i promise i can get it out there there's 20 million there's 20 million dollars i can go get it and dave's like i got you bro i got you and we're gonna go get that money and we're gonna we're gonna have a happy ending for all these people um, the first mission was for Vasallo to get $1.2 million from this scary concrete contractor named Charlie Irata by withdrawing it from a bank near Sacramento. Uh, Putnam rented a day, Putnam rented Dave a crown Victoria that looked just like an undercover cop car and Vasallo and his new bodyguard drove to the bank. When Vasallo tried to convince the teller to let him make that $1.2 million withdrawal, another teller overheard it and called Irata. Minutes later, uh, Irata stormed into the bank demanding an explanation as to why somebody was taking $1.2 million from his bank, which that's reasonable. I, I, I think we would all do the same thing in that situation. Uh, after a tense standoff between Dave and Irata, uh, they came to a compromise to split the money. Uh, Vasallo got the cashier's check probably, you know, for, I guess, uh, $600,000. I think that's half of 1.2 million. I'm not a math guy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, had Dave drive him to another bank to deposit it. And despite the tension in the bank, Dave felt like a hero because they got the money or at least half of the money. And that's great. Dave, man, Dave is on his way. All right. Um, meanwhile, uh, Putnam had, uh, been listening to a pitch from Carrie Sanovich and Brandy White Elk, uh, two Las Vegas based consultants who told Putnam about a British securities trader named Sir Joseph Birch. According to Sanovich, Birch was a financial advisor for the Vatican and promised as much as a 500% return within 90 days. Here's another Ponzi scheme. It's a clearly another Ponzi scheme, guys. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, but Putnam was like, thought that was sounded awesome. But uh, he was skeptical, obviously, because Vasallo had screwed him over. It's probably this Sir Joseph Birch guy is probably about to do the same. So he asked Dave to look into it for him. Uh, Dave called up his good buddy, Craig Anderson, who was a friend from his bodyguard school who worked for the U S post office's terrorism investigation branch, which is apparently a thing that actually exists. Like who knew that the United States postal service had a terrorism investigation branch. I didn't, um, after investigating Birch, everything checked out, but Dave was still a little suspicious about Sanovich and white elk. Um, he noticed that both of these women were really starting to get close with Vasallo, and he eventually learned that all three of them were sleeping together. Obviously. Um, Vasallo had also developed an Oxycontin addiction. Of course he did. Um, and Sanovich actually used that to her advantage uh, to get Vasallo to retrieve over $800,000 for her from a guy named Rob Buckhannon. There's so many different people in this story, it's, it's kind of hard to keep up, but bear with me. Um, the problem was that that $800,000 was for the investors that Dave was trying to help, not for uh, Sanovich. And Dave knew that he was the guy who had to get that money back. So he got Craig to fly in from Chicago to help out with the mission. And when Craig arrived, and this, this, is, what, this is probably the funniest part of the story to me anyway, 
when Craig arrived, the man that everyone thought was a secret agent hacker for the government. Because, yeah, it's this guy who works in the Postal Service's terrorism investigation unit. So obviously, you're thinking it's this just sleek, kind of probably a little nerdy, but in a hot way, um, you know, kind of chiseled jawline kind of guy comes walking in with his glasses and a suitcase. But no, it is actually a it's actually a morbid, morbidly obese, just mailman um, who actually didn't work for the anti-terrorism branch. Um, Dave, so everyone's like real disappointed here. Uh, Dave and Craig arrived in Las Vegas on February 5th, 2009 with Putnam, Homan, Sanovich, White Elk, and Vasallo. It's like, it's shaping up to be this weird, like crew and no one probably really trusts each other. Uh, Putnam had also brought along two more friends, uh, to just to go have fun in Vegas together. Uh, Dave also brought back up. Uh, he brought uh, Sean Smart, a former member of the Sacramento State University basketball team, and Chad Angle, a Las Vegas electrical contractor who owned a huge stockpile of weapons. Where he got this stockpile of weapons, no one knows. They, he just had them. Um, when they all met inside uh, Dave's Mandalay Bay suite, he started by giving everyone code names. All right. Why? Because, man, that's what you do in an action movie. Uh, Dave was Sundance. Craig was Agent Bob. Vasalo was BYU because he's Mormon. That makes sense. Uh, Putnam was Principal because he's the main investor. All right. Makes sense again. Uh, White Elk was Summerland for some reason. Smart was Hawk. And Ingle was Cowboy. I don't know why uh, some of the others didn't get names, but so be it. Um, after giving out the super cool code names, Dave handed everyone a Motorola walkie talkie and then Engel opened his duffel bag, revealing an AR 15 assault rifle, a semi-automatic shotgun and a slew of handguns. And with a loose plan in place, everyone went down to the bar and started drinking. All right. It's like, here's the gear. All right. We're going to start this tomorrow. Everyone just go down and have a good time. Well, (laughs) everyone had too much of a good time. And the next morning, Everyone was super hungover as they put on their bulletproof vests and went over the day's plan. Uh, Vasallo contacted Buckhannon, who told him that he couldn't meet that day because his son was at a wrestling tournament. Well, that wasn't going to fly, so the crew did some quick research and found that there were two different wrestling tournaments happening in the Las Vegas area that day. So they split up, and they each went um, you know, to the, to the wrestling tournaments. Uh, they jumped in the two bulletproof Cadillac Escalades that Dave had rented. <laughs> like, it just keeps getting more ridiculous. Um, and they sped off. As the two groups made it to the desert just before they split up, Dave's SUV ran out of gas. How do you not notice that? How do you not How do you not rent a car and then make sure it's full of gas? It's, it's insanity. Um, uh, so Dave's group was stranded for a couple of hours, but they eventually made it to the tournament and actually found Buchanan. Uh, Dave sat down right next to him and start and uh, just kind of started getting some small talk, trying to get some intel. Intel. I've I've said a couple of things that have been like really hardcore Southern accent. Intel. Anyway, uh, but Buchanan was just more interested about watching his son wrestle. Um, with what little information they gathered, the team walked back out of Mandalay Bay the next day, looking like an amateur SWAT team, and went over to White Elk's office, where the official meeting between Vassallo and Buchanan was to take place. Uh, After taking a quick tour of their surroundings, someone came over the radio yelling that police were gathering across the street and that they were surrounded. So who told police? 
How did the police get involved in this? This was Dave's thing. This was his crew. This was his team. He was going to do this. How did the police get involved? Well, Craig, Craig just calmly walked out the outside to just calm the officers down because obviously he works for the anti-terrorism unit. He doesn't though. Um, But he quickly realized that the officers were just at a coffee shop across the street and they weren't actually surrounding them. They had no idea what was going on. Um, Buchanan did though arrive a short time later and Vassallo followed the script he was given for the meeting. Um, Once Vassallo said the key phrase, whatever it was, uh, the rest of the team burst into the room, guns drawn. Dave went to slap the handcuffs on Vassallo because uh, Dave is, you know, Dave and his group are uh, pretending to be FBI agents to then trick Buchanan into giving up the money. It's, it was a weird plan that they didn't really think it through all the way. Um, but when Dave went to slap the handcuffs on Vassallo, they bounced off and then he tried again and they bounced off again. And then he tried a third time and now it's just getting awkward. It's just like, you're under arrest. No, you're under arrest. You're under arrest. And, you know, trying to sound all cool, but he can't literally, he literally can't handcuff him. Um, He did finally get the cuffs on, on the fourth try and led Vassalo out. Um, Dave then came back to Buchanan and told him that he needed to wire $800,000 that he owed to Vassalo's investors. And then if he refused, Craig leaned in and informed him that he would be harassed by federal agents until he actually complied. Uh, Dave then provided Buchanan with instructions for how to get the money to Bert, Sir Joseph Birch, and Buchanan did exactly what he was told to do. And when everything was done, Buchanan was allowed to leave. But on his way out, he asked if Dave and his team were available for hire because now Buchanan's got some, you know, he was impressed. They got a little awkward, but he got the job done. And now Buchanan was curious to maybe help get their help in getting some money that he was owed. Uh, Three weeks later, Buchanan wired another $100,000 to Dave asking for help retrieving some money that he was owed. And as word spread around his makeshift A-team, more and more people in financial trouble reached out to Dave for help. So now, like, this dude's living the dream. He is this vigilante, you know, federal officer sort of thing that he's just helping people get all their money back. Um, By March, however, the pressure of being a hero every single time was starting to get to him and he was beginning to lose grip on his high paying director job that he was still trying. Like he was still holding with Leviton. Like that's the thing that gets lost here is like this dude by day, he's this executive at a cable or electrical company. And by night, like he's just going out as a, you know, a federal officer type thing, you know, undercover agent, and just like scaring people into, you know, paying back hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Uh, on March 8th, 2009, Dave set out in search of David Joyner and Luke Wiseman, two stock traders who had stolen millions from a hedge fund. However, uh, Vassalo could only prove that they had taken $378,300, but Dave didn't care. He was going to go and get it back. Unbeknownst to Dave, however, uh, Putnam and Sanovich, who were part of this, but then they kind of weren't, but now they're still kind of involved in this. Uh, Sanovich had already secretly met, or Putnam and Sanovich had already secretly met with Joyner and Wiseman uh, to talk about Sir Joseph Birch's fund, but Joyner and Wiseman refused to work with them, thinking that it was like too crazy to be real because it was because it was another Ponzi scheme. Like no one gets five hundred percent back in ninety days. That's insanity. Um, 
Dave decided to form a similar plan to the one that had worked so surprisingly well in Las Vegas um, with Buchanan. So he had Putnam call Joyner and Wiseman saying that uh, he had a new investor who was the heir to this huge door and window company and Joyner and Wiseman agreed to meet them. Well, Putnam went out and recruited Cassandra Moore, a Playboy model from Los Angeles, I kid you not, um, to play the part of a sexy, mysterious representative who was going to be the investor. Uh, Dave gave her the code name, and I'm not making this up, I swear this is what happened. Dave gave her the code name Anastasia Beaverhausen. Uh, this is just, like, it's not even an action movie anymore. It's like this bad action comedy and not something that happened in real life, but I promise you this did happen in real life. Um, although several members of the team weren't happy, they did allow more to join. You know, this was like a tight knit group now and they didn't want some new person coming in. Well, when Wiseman opened the door to start their meeting, the whole team barged in to confront him and Joyner immediately thought that federal agents had raided his office and when he asked what was going on, Dave and Craig looked at Cassandra Moore, who was supposed to say the one line that they told her to say, and she was completely lost. Like, she had no idea what was going on. Um, I don't know what the line was, but, it, like, the key was, like, Wiseman was clearly supposed to say, what is going on here? And then, you know, Cassandra was probably supposed to say something like, oh, it looks like the jig is up, or whatever, like, dumb thing that Dave told her to say. But she's just, you know, like, sitting there just like, ah, you know. I don't know. Um, thinking quickly, though, Dave handed the men two pieces or handed the two men a piece of paper outlining how much money they needed to give up in order to be set free. Wiseman insisted he couldn't possibly get that much money that fast, but Dave gave them 24 hours to do it. Otherwise, they would be subject to federal arrest. And as soon as Dave's team walked out, Joyner called his attorney, who then called the FBI. And this is where Dave kind of messed up. A few days later, Dave received a call from special agent Karen Ernst asking him to stop by their office in Sacramento. And Dave kind of just assumed he was about to be showered with praise for all of this vigilante work that he was doing. You know, he thought the FBI was going to be like, man, you're making our job so much easier. We're going to make you an honorary federal agent. We're going to give you all these special contracts now. Uh, you're going to be just the coolest dude ever. No. Uh, instead, he was immediately arrested as soon as he arrived and was charged with extortion and impersonating a federal officer, which you're not supposed to do. And once everyone, but once everyone kind of saw how weird this story was, Dave only received a $100 fine, six months home detention, and two years of probation for all of this. Um, and that's kind of the end of Dave's story. And uh, yeah, let's get out of here. There you go. The little known story of Dave Sanders. It kind of ends abruptly there, but that's also what happens when you spend f a few years pretending to be a federal agent and then someone finally alerts the FBI. Like the FBI kind of closes things up pretty quick sometimes, uh, unless it's a, a serial killer involved, in which case it drags on for a while. Um, so yeah, that, just, a, just a weird story and, and so many odd details, twists and turns and such like that. So let's uh, see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, the U.S. Postal Service apparently has an anti-terrorism unit. Um, Craig was not a part of that, 
but he thought telling people that he was would probably make him seem a lot cooler than he actually was. Uh, number two, look, uh, I'm not a financial expert, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain in this. If someone, anyone, could be your parents, could be your coworkers, could be a random guy that comes up and starts talking to you, whoever it is, if they tell you that they know about uh, an investment where you can get a crazy return in a short amount of time, do not listen to that person. You will lose all of your money and you won't get it back. Uh, number three, uh, something new that you're going to learn. Um, what happened to some of these other characters in the story? Uh, Putnam and Homan, a uh, couple of the investors, eventually did lose everything to this scam and went on to sell Ferrari parts out of a warehouse in Sacramento. Uh, Sir Joseph Birch, uh, he wasn't actually an investor or even nearly as rich as Craig claimed that he was in reality. Uh, actually, Birch, he was a real person, but he just owned an alpaca farm in southern Ireland or southern England. And yeah, the investment around him was not uh, fruitful either. Uh, Buchanan uh, told investigators that he never actually intended to hire Dave and his team, um, despite you know asking if they were for hire. Uh, rather, Buchanan basically just wired that extra one hundred thousand dollars in hopes that Dave would just leave him alone. Which that's weird. Like, here I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars to not work for me, versus just telling someone like, "Hey, I'm not interested." How hard is that? Must God, rich people problems are so different from the rest of our problems. Uh, and then finally, Anthony Vassallo, uh, the shy little Mormon fellow who started all this, pro- uh, all this crap. Uh, he was charged with multiple accounts of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering, and he obviously went to prison for uh, quite a while. <laughs> Next week on Our Weird World, we're going to go way back in time uh, to the uh, first days of the United States. Uh, Seems somewhat appropriate to celebrate Memorial Day. Uh, And so we're going to look at some lesser known stories from the Revolutionary War. Uh, We're going to look at the stories of Sybil Ludington, Samuel Whittemore, uh, Deborah Sampson, and that's it. Again, I don't prepare as well as I should for these, but three stories next week. Um, some uh, A little bit about the Revolutionary War that you may not have heard. So thank you all for continuing to listen. Uh, hope you enjoyed it today. Keep telling your friends and keep it weird. Keep it weird.